Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be looking at the first half of that chapter. That's on page 1789 of the Blue Pew Bible, and I encourage you to open that up and keep it open on your laps as we explore what God's Word has for us today. Kimberly Winston, in her article, Can You Question the Resurrection and Still Be a Christian? It's the name of the article describes how Scott Korb, age 37, thinks about the resurrection of Jesus. She writes, Scott, a New York University professor who at one time studied to be a Catholic priest, says now he thinks the resurrection of Jesus symbolically. He says, the miracle of a literal bodily resurrection is something I rejected without moving away from its basic idea. What I mean is that we can reach the lowest points of our lives, of going deep into places that feel like death, and then find our way out again. That's the story the resurrection now tells me. And that change from a literal to a metaphorical approach has given the story more power for me, he says. Corb's story is actually not that unusual. Many people slowly drift away, move away from believing in the actual bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and drift to believing that it is some kind of spiritual resurrection or like Corb himself, think about it symbolically or metaphorically or just kind of move into a general belief that it is legend. And perhaps some of that is what's going on in Corinth at the time that Paul is writing. They drifted from believing in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And so Paul begins and writes in verse 1, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he, now, and that he appeared to Peter And then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. And then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Whether whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. 
And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God. If we have testified about God that he has raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also all who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn. Christ, the first fruits then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom of God to God the Father. After he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when he says that everything has been put under his feet, it is clear that that does not include God himself, who must put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who puts everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do? What uh, what will those do who are baptizing for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why do people baptize for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons. What have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. The Corinthian church had drifted from believing in the actual bodily resurrection of Jesus. Because, once again, they had allowed culture to seep into their body. This warning, this warns us uh, once again, and we see this pattern throughout the Corinthian letter of, of the culture of Corinth seeping into their belief system. And it warns us that culture is incredibly powerful. It's like putting a tea bag into hot, pure water. Eventually, it starts seeping out and coloring, slowly polluting. And that's what Paul is warning about in verses 33 and 34 to end. He uses one of their own cultural sayings to, to turn it against them, if you will. He says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Beware that culture does not seep into the body, does not seep into your thinking, does not seep into your believing. 
He warns them, remember, they don't have the mind of Christ. Remember, they don't have the spirit of the living God inside them. They do not have godly priorities. So don't be misled. And the Corinthian church was being to be misled in one major area where the resurrection of Christ is concerned, and that is platonic thought, platonic dualism. And the quick and dirty of, of platonic dualism, what the platonic thought was doing in the Corinthian church, is Platonism believed that the body was bad and that the soul was good. And that the problem was that you had this body that kept leading you into sin and was trapping, literally, this good soul of yours. This platonic thought seeped into the church. And thus, when they came to the resurrection of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, they said, hold on, he can't have his real body back. Because that's bad. That, that's what hinders us. That's what we're trying to get free of. And that platonic thought is still around today. On the gravestone of the 19th century American poet James Russell Lowell, it says this, Here lies the part of James Russell Lowell which hindered him from doing well. And I bet in our minds today, there's still that lingering platonic idea that, you know, this is bad. If I could get rid of the flesh, I'd be okay. It was alive and well in Corinth, so much so they began to doubt Christ's bodily resurrection. And not only that, their own resurrection. The thought of their pure and freed souls being re-wed, being reunited with their body, was absolutely horrible to them. And so Jesus' bodily resurrection posed a serious intellectual problem for them. So what does Paul do? Well, first thing he does is he says simply that the resurrection is true. The resurrection is true. That's part of why he begins the whole chapter with reiterating the gospel in verses 3, 4, and 5. He says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He's encouraging the Corinthian church, hold on to the bare bones of the gospel. This is the bare bones of the gospel. Christ's atoning death, and his life-giving resurrection. That Christ actually died for our sins. Now, whether you're sitting here today and trust that or not, or believe that or not, I'm here to tell you that sin is our problem. Sin is our problem. Sin is what causes us to die. And that sin needs payment. It always requires payment. Shortly after the Chernobyl disaster in the 80s, right after it happened, 
they, they actually didn't know what the extent of the damage was. And I read a story shortly thereafter that one of the scientists or one of the workmen there climbed up on the roof of the reactor that was blown off and he peered over the side to see what kind of damage was done. And as he peered over the side, he looked down into an exposed reactor with the full radiation. He knew right then how serious the accident was. He also knew right then that he was going to die. He had been exposed. His head was exposed to radiation, and he eventually died. Romans 6.23 is like looking right into that reactor. It says, the wages of sin is death. We know we're going to die. And we know why we're going to die. Because of sin. But God in his unfailing love in the person of Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life. A perfectly sinless life. He lived perfectly righteously under the law of God his whole life. And he earned righteousness. He earned heaven. He earned life eternal. And the amazing love that we just sang about is that he said, I give my life up for people like you and me. And that's what the cross is all about. He went to the cross and he paid the penalty for my sin and hopefully your sin if you believe in Jesus Christ. He paid for it. In other words, he peered over the edge and looked right into the reactor core of sin, and he died. And then Paul says, and he was buried. He atoned for your sin. And Paul, it's interesting that Paul puts, and was buried in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Why is that so important? It's so important that the apostles put it in. In our Apostles' Creed that we just said, he descended into hell. He was dead and buried. He actually died. This wasn't some swooning. This wasn't some fainting. He was dead. And from the silence of that tomb on that third Sunday, he rose from the dead. He rose physically, he rose materially. He rose tangibly. He rose bodily. And the Corinthians, steeped in that tea of Platonism, were having trouble with that. They were saying, we love the rest of the, we love this atoning stuff. We love the cross, but we're having a little trouble with the resurrection. We love everything else, but we can't just stomach the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ because that's what we're trying to get free of. And to that, Paul says, it's a fact. It's true. And he lists three things here in, ver- in the following verses, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. He says, listen, that's how it was, that, that was the plan. You notice twice he says, according to the scriptures. 
He died according to the scriptures. He rose according to the scriptures. The scriptures give evidence to that. The scriptures give evidence to his resurrection. In in Psalm 16.10, it says, Do not abandon my body to the grave. The Holy One will not see decay. He gave us pictures of this resurrection life in things such as Aaron's staff rebudding after it was dead. He gave us examples of this resurrection, of Jonah going down into the depths, but the sign of Jonah is him coming back out of the depths. He also gave eyewitness evidence. The scriptures tell of his resurrection. And then he says, you know what? Go talk to some people. You know, we're not that far from this event. Historian Philip Schaff says, the resurrection of Christ is therefore emphatically a test question upon which depends the truth or falsehood of the Christian religion. It is either the greatest miracle or the greatest delusion in history. And Paul knows that. And so he says, listen, here are some people you can go and talk to. Go talk to Cephas. Go talk to Peter. He met the resurrected Christ. He's probably re- uh, referring there to John 21 when when. Uh, Peter comes back onto the shore and he eats with them in the threefold challenge, go feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Or go talk to any of the apostles. They, they saw him multiple times. Or go talk to Jesus' brother. You know why he, that, that mention is so important? is because Jesus' brother James did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah his whole life until after he saw him resurrected. And then he believed. Or go talk to one of the crowds that saw him, like the 500. Go check it out yourself, Paul's saying. They can't all be lying. I love what Chuck Colson says in his book, Born Again. He says, I know the resurrection is fact, and the Watergate incident proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed the truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it wasn't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep the lie for three weeks. You're telling me the apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. And probably the most powerful evidence that Paul has here for the resurrection is his changed life. Look at what he says here. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And that grace to me is not without effect. You want to know the greatest miracle that still happens on a daily basis? that you and I can see a changed life. A person who was greedy and envious and bitter and angry turned into a kind, loving, giving, sacrificial person. That's what Charles Dickens was trying to show with Scrooge in such a beautiful way. That's what happens to each one of us. I'm here to tell you 
that you are a Scrooge. You really are. But by the grace of God, he can change you. And he does change us. That's the effect that God in the resurrection has on us. Paul says, I, the gospel is not without effect. Look at me. I was a persecutor of the church. I, I, my zeal was so great that I went and I got uh, writs from, from the, the Sanhedrin to go and persecute the church. And now I'm its greatest advocate, its greatest defender, its greatest propagator. And look at the humility that is even in there. He says, yeah, but not I. It's the grace of God. That is still the greatest miracle. And we each have our own Scrooge's testimony. That's why we do testimonies here at Southwest Harbor Congregational. We want to see and hear the evidence of God's resurrecting power in you. That encourages us. How has God changed your life? How are you different than you were one year ago, five years ago, ten years ago? How are you different? And if you can't, if you can't look at things and say, yep, that's God in me, then you might know a lot about God. But you don't know God. You don't know his resurrecting power. Secondly, Paul tells the Corinthians that not only is the resurrection true, but the resurrection is essential. The resurrection is essential. That's what he's telling them in verses 12 through 19. Again, some were drifting from the idea that the bodily, of the bodily resurrection of Christ, that the soul is good in the, that they thought the soul was good in the body was bad. Philosopher John Locke says, Our Savior's resurrection is truly of great importance, so great that his being or not being the Messiah stands and falls with it. So that these two articles are inseparable and in, in effect make one. For since that time, believe one and you believe both. Deny one and you deny both. This is Paul's reasoning with the, with the Corinthian church. You can't separate it. You can't say, I believe in the atonement, but you know, I'm not liking this resurrection thing, or I can't seem to put my mind around this resurrection thing. Um, or maybe, I like the bodily resurrection of Jesus, but, but not my bodily resurrection. Or perhaps the reverse. It's an all or nothing Proposition. Look at verse 13 with me. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, i.e. our own bodily resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised. And then drop down to verse 15. He says, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. It's not an either or. It's a both and. You have to believe your bodily resurrection, Corinthians, and Christ's bodily resurrection, or no bodily resurrection of Christ, 
and you're not bodily risen from the dead. If you reject, you'll be bodily raised from the dead, then you deny that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And if that is true, he paints a pretty grim picture in the verses following, doesn't he? He says, okay, if you don't want to believe that Christ is not raised from the dead, let me paint a picture for you. First, our preaching is useless, verse 14. Paul later wrote to Timothy in one of his last letters, I give you this charge, preach the word in season and out of season. Why is the centrality of preaching so important? Why is this last charge to Timothy so key? Why do we center our worship service today, people, around what I'm doing right now? Opening God's word, reading God's word, explaining God's word, and applying God's word. Because that's where the power is. That's where the power is. I was asked by somebody this week, you know, why is this church experiencing such a renaissance? What what, what are you guys doing? And I turned to this person and I said, you know, you're going to think it's crazy and silly and too simplistic. But I said... It's simply preaching God's word faithfully. Preaching God's word faithfully. Because that's where the power is. It's not in looking at the culture and saying, what can we do here that will attract people? How can, how can we frame our service in such a way that makes them feel comfortable that it will attract them? No, that's not it at all. It's not if we take out the pews and we bring in comfy chairs. It's not in having a great youth group, although we have a dynamically amazing youth group. It's not in having a praise band. We've got to have drums or else they won't come. Although we have an amazing praise team. It's not in bowing to cultural pragmatism or having overhead projectors or having a cool hipster pastor that wears skinny jeans and a goatee. It's simply the power of God's word preached week in and week out. Paul says, if Christ is not raised from the dead, there's no power. It's useless. Secondly, he says we're false witnesses. What we're doing right now with the Alpha course, we are propagating a huge lie if Christ is not raised from the dead. Thirdly, he says, our faith is futile. According to the dictionary, futile is defined as incapable of producing any useful results. On February 7th, Sinclair Lewis was born in 1885 in Minnesota. He won the Nobel Peace Prize for Literature in 1930. Perhaps you've read some of his books, The Main Street, It Can't Happen Here in Babbitt. Yet for all his renown, for all his wealth, Lewis died of alcoholism in Rome. Upon his death in 1951, he was cremated and his ashes were set in an urn in the embassy. 
waiting for disposition. One morning, a visitor was uh, was noticing a worker on her knees with a dustpan and a broom next to a fallen urn. When asked what she was doing, she replied, sweeping up Sinclair Lewis. If the resurrection is not true, we're all just ashes. Fourth, we're all still in our sins, he says in 17. In other words, each one of us has peered over the edge of Romans 6.23 and we're dying and we'll be eternally separated from God forever and there's nothing we can do about it. Unless Christ has been raised. Fifty says, all who died before believing in Christ are lost. In verse 18. In verses 29 and 30, which I'm sure that you guys all are scratching your head about, as well as every theologian that's ever tried to write on this, Paul talks about baptizing people for the dead. Very enigmatic. There's over 40 interpretations of this. I think it's probably... What's going on in Corinth is that they were doing what's practicing what's called proxy baptisms. In other words, a, a loved one had died that was either a believer or maybe or probably a non believer, and they were baptizing either themselves or someone else in place of that departed loved one, so that the the salvific effects of that baptism will be applied to that person. They were baptizing people for the dead. And Paul says, uh, if you don't believe in the resurrection and in life, bodily life, why are you doing that? What are you doing? Why are you baptizing people for the dead? There's no hope if there's no resurrection. All who died before you are lost. And that's a reality for us too. If you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all who have died are lost. And Paul puts an exclamation point on that at the end and says, we are to be pitied more than all men. But in verse 20, Paul comes back and he says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Look with me at verses 21 and 22. He goes on to say, For since death came through a man, and the resurrection of the dead comes through a man. For in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. What Paul is saying here is the resurrection isn't just true. It isn't just, it isn't just essential. It's his plan all along. The resurrection was God's plan all along. Paul's saying, listen, God created it so that one man in the beginning would be responsible for humanity, Adam. And what Adam did would have effects in all of humanity. If Adam obeyed perfectly, we would be in paradise. And the narrative of Genesis 3 tells us that Adam did not obey God. 
that he went his own way, that he did his own thing, that he rejected God's authority. And we, his children, are the same way. The effect of his disobedience has on us is that we don't like authority. Don't tell me what to do. We're constantly complaining about the government, right? Constantly complaining about our representatives. Constantly complaining about maybe our pastor. Maybe the church. We don't like authority. And we don't like to obey. We are in Adam. But God knew what he was doing way back then. He was going to send a second Adam. That's actually the language that Paul uses in verses 45 and 47 of 1 Corinthians 15. There's a second Adam, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he obeyed willingly, perfectly, lovingly. When asked (laughs) when he was here what his mission was, he said, I have come down from heaven to do Not my will, but the Father's will. He lived a perfect life, appreciating living under the authority of God. When asked one time, Jesus said, my food is to do my Father's will. I love living under God's authority. If you trust in Jesus... You're transferred from being in Adam to being in Christ. And that was his plan all along, from death to life. And that's not the end of the plan, because Paul here uses the word first fruits, the first fruits of what is to come, twice to describe Jesus' resurrection. That's a harvest metaphor meant to convey this is the first of something better, even bigger to come. The beginning of something even greater, and Paul goes on to explain that. Jesus' resurrection puts in motion what we have come to term the end times. That is the switch. A glimpse, and here he gives us a glimpse of the rest of the plan. Paul wants us to see the three most important truths about the end times. Three most important truths about the end times. The first one is Christ will return and the dead in Christ will be raised. That's in verses 22 and 23. Christ will return. This is what he's reminding his disciples about right after he celebrates the last Passover with him. When he's walking up to to the Garden of Gethsemane. I will not eat of the fruit of the vine again until I eat it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. That's what I remind us of every time we take the Lord's Supper. The table before us today reminds us to look at ourselves and confess, to look back at Christ's atonement and celebrate and to look forward with hope. The second thing that Paul wants us to know about the end times is death will be destroyed. The curse from Genesis 3 is reversed. There will be no more death. And the last thing he wants us to know is the rightful reign of Christ will be reinstalled. 
That's what Tolkien was writing, that great epic of Lord of the Rings to show. The return of the king. He comes back and there's peace. There's prosperity. The tree, the one tree begins blooming again. And so God will be all in all. J.I. Packer says this. This world and its history are a prelude and a foretaste. All the sunrises and sunsets, the symphonies and rock concerts, feasts and friendships are but whispers. They are a prologue to the grander story in an even better place. Hearts on earth say in the course of a joyful experience, I don't want this to ever end. Have you ever said that? But invariably it does. The hearts in heaven say, I want this to go on forever. And it will. There can be no better news than this. Praise God. Please pray with me. Father God, I thank you for your word and spirit. It is up to you to use this word powerfully in our lives to renew our minds and to change our hearts. We give ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.